Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Tox Talk, a toxicology podcast from the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology. I'm Matt Zuckerman. Welcome back. I uh, hope you enjoyed uh, last month's episodes. This episode's slightly delayed. We want to do a Halloween episode, but with the big storm, actually, the town of Worcester postponed Halloween, and uh, we postponed our Halloween show. But this is just in time for your break on Thanksgiving or Turkey Day, so you can sneak away and listen to some toxicology. Our first segment on the show is a Halloween segment with myself, Ed Boyer, and uh, Stephanie Weiss, and we are going to be discussing ghouls and goblins and things that go bump in the night, but with a slightly more tox bend. Don't get too scared. And then later on, we talk about something truly spooky, anticoagulation, uh, with uh, Dabigatrin or Dabigatran or Pradaxa. Uh, I think there's going to be a large amount of confusion over how to pronounce this drug. I've heard both Dabigatran and Dabigatrin, but essentially, it's that new drug uh, that you're going to start seeing people on. Uh, and uh, given the fact that it's possibly an uncontrollable anticoagulant, it's a little bit spooky, so appropriate for this show. Also, something that can be good to talk about with your elderly family members, as I'm sure when you go home you'll note that a few of them are on it. And for that segment, it'll be myself, Kivita Babu, and Scott Glazier discussing that drug. You can reach us on the web at toxtalk.org, that's T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org, where you can get supplementary materials for our shows, find past shows, and find information about our Facebook and Twitter feeds. It's also there where you can reach us by clicking on the Contact Us link. Feel free to drop a line with any tox-related questions. That can be about the practice of toxicology, being a toxicologist, emergency medicine talks, or if you just wanted to comment on who has the, the best radio voice or if you just wanted to comment in general. T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G, also available in the iTunes store. Hello, and welcome to this Halloween edition of Tox Talk. This is Matt Zuckerman, fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. With me today are... I'm Stephanie Weiss. I'm a first-year resident at UMass. And I'm Ed Boyer. I'm the Fellowship Director in Medical Toxicology at University of Massachusetts. And this being the Halloween season, we wanted to wish everyone a happy Halloween. And I think Tox and Halloween have a lot of overlap. There's a lot of things that go bump in the night, and there's a lot of sort of spooky, strange things that, that occur, at least certainly in the patients. Uh, when we started talking about this podcast, Ed, you were very excited about doing a Halloween-themed episode. Yeah, I just like Halloween. I do, too. It's always been my favorite holiday. <laughs> you know, I think one one place to start off with the Halloween episode is to talk about you know, like some of the famous intoxications that have happened on Halloween. So for our first one, uh, let me just start off. Now, that wasn't 
a gap in the recording, that was because, you know, like if you talk about intoxications and Halloween, one things that leap, one of the things that leaps to a lot of people's mind are the famous cases of poison candy. And if you go back and actually look at the cases of poison candy or razor blades hidden in fruit that were handed out in apples, I remember and, hearing and, yeah, that. razor blades and apples, you know, like they they just ain't there. So, you know, like being academic, liking to publish, liking the cool new things, um, you know, like I look for this, and you know, like toxicologists just haven't published any, which suggests to me that there really haven't been any cases of it because we would have put it in the in the literature otherwise. So, if there's anybody out there in emergency medicine land who sees somebody with an intoxication from candy that they have received while they were trick-or-treating, please let us know. We want to be the first to publish this important piece of data. I think that would be fantastic. And I have to say, I kind of like that whole concern about that because it's one of the few times when eating the processed candy that's sort of shrink-wrapped and, you know, will survive a nuclear holocaust, that's the safe candy. It's the homemade candy that you don't know what could be in there. And, uh, you know, somebody makes something, they can always wrap up poison. So... That's why on Halloween it's always safest to eat sort of processed Snickers bars. Yeah, but based on the epidemiology, I might not be afraid to eat just about anything that comes into my little uh, jack-o'-lantern when I go trick-or-treating. Now, that's not to say that there aren't things that can happen on Halloween. And the case I did want to go over is about a 10-year-old boy who came into the emergency department with the chief complaint of, I just don't feel so hot. And if you look at this kid, he seems a little bit intoxicated, which is not all that uncommon for Halloween, but it is in a 10, 11-year-old boy. And uh, you get laboratories back on him, and the interesting thing about him is that he had not only an os- an anion gap, but he had an osmolar gap. Now, Stephanie, being the emergency medicine resident here, you know, like one thing that you do have to know for the boards, the emergency medicine boards, as well as uh, the medical toxicology boards is how to calculate the osms, the serum osmoles of a patient. Do you remember how to do that? I actually do remember how to do that. <laughs> I think most people have an application on their on their smartphone. That's that's how you do it typically. Yeah, I mean that's that's all well and good if you're young folks like you who are you know like, you know totally dependent on your smartphones, but unfortunately you can't take your smartphones into the boards, and you do have to pass them. I don't have a smartphone anyway, so it wouldn't help me. So yeah, basically what you need to do is multiply the sodium times 2, and then you're going to add on the BUN divided by 2.8, and then the glucose divided by 18, and then you can also add on some extra terms if you have some ethanol or methanol in there. Basically you're dividing them by their molecular weight, and then uh, you have to divide that again by another 10 just to, uh, just to change the units. And it's amazing in our population how often that ethanol becomes important, for some reason. <laughs> Especially on Halloween. Um, but the, um, you know, that's the bare-bones, low-brow way of calculating the osmolar, uh, the, the serum osms of a, of a patient. There are, uh, I don't know, 20, 30, maybe as many as 50 different ways of, of calculating the serum osms. And uh, you'll have to know the one that we've just given you for the emergency medicine boards. So the um, 
you know, that's actually the, the lowbrow way of doing the calculation, but it doesn't really matter. It's the one that seems to work really well. There are, you know, like 20, 30, maybe even more ways of calculating the serum osms, but for the purposes of the emergency medicine boards, that's the equation that you'll need to use. Now, this child uh, came in, and he had an elevated serum osm. So when you talked to him and got a little bit further history, they had a fogger in their front yard. And uh, they'd had the fogger for a couple of years, but the interesting thing about about the fogger is uh, there's stuff that you have to add to it. You have to add the fogging solution. And depending on which manufacturer you have, there are different fogging solutions that you have to add to it. And after a couple of years of you know, vigorous trick-or-treating, they'd run out of the fogger solution and decided to add their own to it. So you have to know at this point a little bit about how foggers, you know, like the trick-or-treating fogger machines are made. There's a, a small self-contained device which plugs into a wall and you pour in the fogging solution into a small tank on the top and fog comes out a little aperture on the side. Well, that's all well and good, but there's a little bit of machinery that goes into the inside. There's a, an aluminum block and there is a block heater. The block heater raises the temperature of the aluminum block when the fogging solution comes into contact with it, it immediately vaporizes and then is uh, propelled out by means of a fan. When it hits the cooler air on the outside of the machine, it then condenses into fog. But you have to have a fogging solution that is the correct molecular weight, has the correct dew point, even though it doesn't necessarily apply specifically in this case, that it will create fog at most ambient temperatures for late October in the United States. And the physicochemical properties are best incorporated into a class of molecules known as the glycols. Depending on the manufacturer, depending on the size of the tube, depending on the size of the aperture, the, vo you know, the volume displacement of the fan, there are different foggers, fogging solutions, which means that there are different molecular weight glycols. So if you have a manufacturer of one particular fogging agent, you need to get the fogger that matches up with it best. And because it's a replacement item, just like if the little motor goes off on one of your one of your cars and you're surprised that it's $900 to replace that one little simple part, the fogging solutions are really are expensive to replace as well. This family didn't want to pay the expense of replacing the fogging solution, so they walked right over and they found another glycol around the house, which they thought would work really well and which would when the child found it dripping out and for some reason tasted it, he noticed it was kind of sweet. Sweet. Right. <laughs> you can see where this is going. <laughs> yes. Noticed, noticed it was kind of sweet, and then it was kind of cool to sit there and breathe in the fog and taste this kind of sweet solution dripping out of it. And after a little while, he became intoxicated. So this guy had... Ethylene glycol. Which... Ethylene glycol toxicity. Now, here at the University of Massachusetts, we're particularly lucky in that we can, uh, you know, you either infer the diagnosis of ethylene glycol toxicity or you establish the diagnosis of ethylene glycol toxicity. And here we're particularly lucky in that we can establish the diagnosis because we can directly measure the concentration from serum of ethylene glycol from our patients. 
most other locations have to resort to measuring the serum osms and then calculating an osmolar gap. And that introduces some difficulty for people when they manage these folks because you have to measure serum osms, CHEM7, or now basic metabolic panel, as well as uh, an arterial blood gas all at the same time. You can't draw one, then draw another, and that's because the metabolism of the compound will change the anion gap, will change the osms, and change the pH. So if they're not measured concurrently, you get erroneous values measured from them. And I think that's um, that's really important to note. I mean, I think the osmolar gap can confuse a lot of people in terms of what it means. And the equation is much less important than what it means. And essentially, the osmolar gap is just the majority of osms in somebody's blood usually are sodium, BUN, and glucose, unless there's something else there that shouldn't be there. And so all you're really doing is trying to calculate the osms, and then you measure the osms, and then if there's a gap, then there's, it's almost like dark matter. It explains what the gap is, and so there must be something else, either ethanol or methanol or you know, ethylene glycol. And um, anyone who's measured glucose and seen how quickly glucose can change knows that when you're trying to measure glucose and put it into an equation, if you wait 30 minutes and then send it on a different sample, you're going to get a totally different number. So that's why it's so important to sort of measure everything instantly. And if you found that you haven't if you haven't measured one of these items, if you haven't measured um, ethanol or you haven't measured something else and you need to send it back or add a tube, then you really have to redraw all of the uh, things that you're measuring. So this child uh, had an ethylene glycol concentration which was sufficiently elevated that we, we elected to treat him with fomepazole. He didn't have any evidence of renal injury, one of the signs of, one of the late uh, signs of ethylene glycol poisoning is renal insufficiency. But Without that being present, you can just block metabolism of ethylene glycol and allow the kidneys to uh, eliminate ethylene glycol as they normally would. Ethylene glycol is interesting is that it's the only toxic alcohol which has significant renal elimination. You can't manage methanol patients this way. You can only do it with ethylene glycol intoxicated patients who don't have a severe acidosis and who do not have evidence of renal impairment. And the, and the neat thing also is, I mean, we're very blessed to have rapid turnaround of sort of volatile alcohols uh, in our institution. So we can very often, very often it gets done without even the osmolar gap being calculated. But it's nice for someone who doesn't have that available, they can calculate the osmolar gap. And then if they know the molecular weight of the suspected osm, so if they think that it's ethylene glycol or they think that it's methanol, then they can back calculate to figure out about what the serum level must be of that of that osm, assuming that they, they think they know what it is. And that they can calculate it correctly. And that they can calculate it correctly, which luckily just ends up being dividing. So, so yes. Higher math. Yes. Higher I mean, math. it's higher math, but when you see it on the emergency medicine boards, you need to recognize that you know, like what you if you can't remember the formula, just remember two times the sodium. The number that you see will be divisible into something even so it'll be like a BUN of 28. So 28 divided by 2.8 is like some number that you have to add to it. They put the numbers, they'll make them easy that way for you so that you can do it in your head, you're saying? or Yes, because you can't bring your smartphone into the boards. Right. No, I was just wondering if you would basically uh, estimate. So, you know, maybe say it's divided by 3 just as an estimate, but you don't even have to do that. No, it'll be, it'll be an even multiple. Yeah, and then, uh, for example, in terms of correcting for ethanol, so it's essentially ethanol divided by 4.6. So if you are getting an osmolar gap from 
unmeasured ethanol, although most people can measure ethanol, if your osmolar gap is 46, then your ethanol level would be 10. Correct. Yes. We, we discuss cases in our Thursday conferences here at the UMass Toxicology Program in a little bit different way. And a few years ago, we had a most excellent differential, which has probably not been repeated uh, many times in emergency medicine around the world. And this was a case um, presented the week after Halloween of a 52-year-old man found wandering, and I kid you not, he was naked, wandering around in a graveyard in the middle of the night. And at which point I said, okay, let's stop right there and come up with a differential. And the fellows all looked at me, uh, not knowing what to do. And I said, okay, uh, let me just start off. It's Halloween. It's a graveyard. It's this guy wandering around, you know, like incoherent and not really responding appropriately to things. I put ghouls right on the top of my differential, at which point a fellow said, zombies? And I said, exactly. That would be next. And then the third fellow said, the undead, and I said, similar to zombies, but we'll, you know, like a little, you know, like enough difference that we'll count it on the differential too. <laughs> so you can, you can come up with some really cool differentials around Halloween time. Well, I think the toxicology mindset is, is sort of one that can be applied to any problem in life. Any problem, there's always a differential. Yeah, any problem in life, and sometimes even in the undead. But um, bum. We need a rim shot. So, so what happened with that? <laughs> So what happened with that particular uh, that particular case? I don't recall exactly what happened in that case. I believe it was an individual who'd overdosed on anticonvulsants. Anticonvulsants are really interesting because as uh, as a class, they can depression mental status, they can uh, give you an ataxic stumbling gait, and there's something that if you don't keep on your differential and then look for them, either by history or in terms of measuring a concentration, you might miss them. And it's, it's interesting, too, and uh, because it's fun to look at uh, sort of common stories like that, you know, the man wandering in the graveyard, and at another time he might be considered a zombie, and, and maybe the village people would talk about the zombies, and, and um, there's always this attempt to explain the supernatural, and so there's discussions of there's the people who practice voodoo, and they can sometimes induce close to catatonic states in, in, in um, humans, and there's a question as to whether or not they're giving them sort of general CNS depressants or, or kind of dissociative hallucinogenics. And it's just interesting to ask yourself, what is causing this from, from a tox perspective? One of my favorite examples like that is actually a, an article that goes back uh, to 1921. It's actually a, an article from 1921 from the American Journal of Ophthalmology entitled Effects of Carbon Monoxide Upon the Eye, which sounds like one of the most boring articles you, you could read. Um, and it's actually full of... Um, I, I, I agree with that, by the way. It does sound like it a does. really boring article. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not. It's not. It's yeah, not a really boring yeah, article. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are actually a lot of visual field diagrams in the article, so it makes it ten times longer than it should be. But um, I have to say that I'm stealing this from another another podcast. Uh, this American Life talked about this, and it's been talked about in other, in other uh, sort of ghost stories. But it talks about a family that back in... 19 I think it was 1920, uh, had to move into a new house. And it was a big, old, scary house that nobody had lived in for many years. And there was much work on it. And uh, the wife and the husband move in first. And all of a sudden, they feel cold and they feel tired. And they, they just don't have energy anymore. And their children, their bright, sort of cherubic children, just they lose their energy. And, and they, they talk about how the playroom becomes empty. 
Yes, it was a large, rambling, high-studied house built about 1870 and much out of repair. The great thing about this article is it quotes verbatim uh, in this sort of um, 1920s vernacular what's going on with them. And it talks about how absolute silence reigned through the house and not a footfall could be heard. Not even a mouse? Not even a mouse, exactly. And uh, one morning I heard footsteps in the room over my head. I hurried up the stairs. To my surprise, the room was empty. I was the only person in that part of the house. And how she develops uh, headaches and how she starts to feel weak and tired. And it actually kind of reminds me of that story, the, uh, the, the yellow wallpaper. I don't know if you guys ever read it about the huh. crazy woman in the yellow wallpaper. And how the children stop playing in the playroom at the top of the stairs. And they start to hear bells ringing and pots clanging. And at one point, the wife is walking down the, down the hallway and she sees a woman in dark who's sort of approaching her. And she goes to greet her and she finds that nobody's there. And it's actually just herself reflection in the mirror, wearing something completely different. The odd thing about this is it happens multiple times, and she says each time she's surprised by it. So I could see sort of seeing yourself in the mirror and getting caught off guard, but it happens multiple times. And there I am again. Yeah. Oh, that's me. I still see my reflection. I'm not a vampire. You didn't have vampires on your differential. We'll come back to vampires later in the podcast. Okay. And then they notice that all of their servants are going crazy, and the servants can't stand it. And they look in the history of the house, and they find that the previous owners went through the same thing. And they're, I mean, it sounds like they're ready to call a priest or an exorcist. And then uh, their friend, their their brother comes by and says, you know, maybe you're being poisoned. Uh, and so they call the doctor, and the doctor comes and says, you know what, you are being poisoned. The furnace is broken. And the exhaust was actually exhausting straight into the house. And so all of this carbon monoxide was filling the house. And that's what was causing all of these symptoms, which are sort of vague and scary and creepy, but I think a really good example of how how sort of indolent and and subtle carbon monoxide poisoning can be. Um, and this being Halloween, Halloween is a time for ghouls and ghosts and goblins, but it's also a time for space heaters in closed spaces, um, especially actually right now in Massachusetts with huge portions of power being out. Many people are coming up with creative ways to heat their homes, including charcoal grills. And so I think we're seeing more of this. But um, kitties, charcoal grills inside your home is ne when they're lit is never a good idea. Yeah, it wouldn't even have occurred to me to try that. What tipped me off for that story is that, uh, and what Matt hadn't mentioned yet, is that the wife and the kids went on a vacation for about a week. And while they were gone, they all felt a lot better. And then they came back and their symptoms resumed once they got back. So that, to me, was, was kind of... Uh, tip-off since when they were out of the environment they felt normal and then when they were in the environment that's when they started having the symptoms. And from a toxicologic perspective when you're doing an environmental assessment of a location or a potential toxicity it's really important to identify the timing and onset of symptoms in the environment as well as out of the environment and whether or not they whether or not they go away and the speed with which they dissipate. So this is a this is a classic description of something that was really going on. You know, like despite the language, despite the age, despite everything else, there's a pretty clear sense that it took a, a, uh, a nuanced observer to recognize what was truly happening here. No, I think that's, that's very, very true. And they were trying to understand the symptoms in the cultural experience of their age. And... At that time, it might have been more common to have a haunted house than to suspect poisoning. Um, 
And, but anyone hearing this story nowadays would say, I have multiple members of a family who are all affected in the same place. It seems to get better when they go away. It seems to get worse when they're there. Um, it must be carbon monoxide. Maybe we should start thinking about haunting more. Maybe we've, we're missing more hauntings. I don't, I don't know that we need to. I mean, in times past, we did have goblins and ghosts and, if, like if you're from down south, haints and that sort of thing. But <laughs> nowadays, nowadays we have toxins. So I think that the, the family member who came over and said, you know, like, I don't think you've got a problem with, a, you know, like a, an infestation of the undead. I think you've got poisoning. I give that guy some credit. I mean, he's solidly 90 years ahead of the societal trends here in the United States. I mean, that's, that's ahead of the curve if I've ever heard it. No, absolutely. And that's, and that's sort of um, very much environmental and occupational toxicology is where is the exposure coming from? And you would think it's obvious, just like in emergency medicine, when you see the patient with the growing belly and the um, lack of periods for nine months, you think it, it would occur to them that they're pregnant, or you think it would occur to someone that every time they go home, they get headache and they feel weak, maybe there's some carbon monoxide. But we don't always see what's staring us right in the face. This story actually mentions that she would walk around the house and smell gas also. Nobody quite mentions that in the ghost stories. But I don't know that the family was really was really looking for the, the gas poisoning. So that's kind of interesting, though, because if it was carbon monoxide, she shouldn't have been able to smell it. Well, I think she was also smelling other exhaust fumes from... Okay, so she was smelling exhaust. Products, products of incomplete combustion. Yes, okay. no, absolutely. And, um, and so I think that's very true. But it's similarly when people that work with nitroglycerin... And then, you know, the, the exposure to, to the agent can result in a headache after they go home, but then when they have a weekend and they're not working, then the headaches get better. Oh, and yeah, and then they start feeling bad on Mondays again. Right. And but that's, that, that's a classic symptom from a number of things. Uh, cotton, cotton gin workers experience the same thing. They would feel increasingly poorly over the course of a week and come Friday afternoon when work is off Saturday morning, they're, they're happy as clams again. Go back to work on Monday, they're exposed to cotton dust they get the same constellation of symptoms again and again and again. And I have to say that sometimes on our less sensitive days, it's easy to say, you know what, you just don't like to work. You're lazy and depressed and you need a new job. That's, and, be, that's beside the point. I mean, that's a, that should be taken as a given. And let's face it, this family had a Victor, probably a beautiful Victorian fixer-upper that they got for cheap. They might not want to find any significant problems in it. Oh, that's an excellent point, the power of self-denial. So if you folks at home are listening to this podcast and you might feel a little tired, maybe you've had a headache recently, maybe you're just feeling under the weather. Breathing in the fogger fumes. Breathing in the fogger fumes, those sweet, sweet fumes. Think about tox. Think about the poisons that could be there right now. Isn't that spookier than any ghost or goblin? But don't worry. If you're not thinking about tox, we are. But, you know, we talked about vampires earlier. I always thought vampires were really kind of boring from a toxicologic perspective. You know, Matt, you talked about the, the people who were in a trance. And, you know, like one, one chemical that can produce a trance-like state, uh, a protracted trance-like state, is Ibogaine. Ibogaine is a West African herb. Um, Iboga species is the name of the plant. Ibogaine is the actual is the actual chemical that's within it. It can produce potent open and closed-eye visual hallucinations for up to 48 hours. So it was used as part of a um, coming-of-age ceremony in West African uh, indigenous peoples, and then 
some individuals in the 1960s who were heroin addicts and experimenting with all sorts of drugs tried it, and then they discovered that their heroin addiction was cured. And so it's led to this interesting notion that you can reset your neurochemistry and undo all addiction just with one brief burst of hallucinogenic oomph. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of evidence to support that, and what there is evidence to support that, like some of the other drugs which affect uh, neurochemical systems, it also affects cardiac conduction systems as well. And dying a death from torsade de pointe is something that hasn't been proven, but given the experience of some individuals, is likely. It does tend to stop the heroin addiction, though. Torsade to point leading to death, yes, absolutely it does. But, you know, the data, the data surrounding, surrounding that work is confused at best. You know, like it's been produced by a, I forget the exact language, I, I think a self-regulating squatter community over a seven-year period in Amsterdam. I mean, that doesn't sound like a rigorous scientific research environment to begin with. And when you consider that some of the individuals returned to using heroin during the study period itself, there are only like seven people in the study, or 30 people in the study over a seven-year period. You know, when a lot of those people transition back to using heroin during the study period of only a couple of days, it's unclear how long or how effective Ibogaine actually is or how long its effect truly does last. So it's the Ibogaine that was causing the torsat? Uh, that's the presumption. Because of the treatment with Ibogaine is done in atypical clinical environments or poorly monitored clinical environments, it's difficult to find out exactly what somebody's EKG was before, during, and after treatment. There is, however, an interesting New England Journal report from, I believe, a couple of years ago looking at a woman who had uh, a traumatically prolonged QT interval that was unresponsive to all the typical interventions. The presumption was that any symptomatology that she suffered was due to uh, a prolonged QT interval leading to torsade de point. But it was uh, prolonged longer than would be expected from typical drug effect, and it was unresponsive to most interventions. I mean, I guess you wouldn't know if they were taking something else in addition, because they certainly could have been and not reported it. Or... Yeah, it's a fraught patient community and a difficult treatment environment. There's not much data. There's not much evidence to support its use. And what? some people... I'm sorry, Matt, go ahead. No. Well, I think I think honestly, well, even even before I heard the data behind it, my initial reaction is 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 not surprised. Whenever a lot of these a lot of these patients have the idea that they are modifying their normal chemistry and they're sort of attracted to that and amateur science and experimenting on their brains and the idea of jolting their brain out of addiction is is attractive. Just like the idea of you know gastric bypass is more attractive than diet and exercise. So you know if you could avoid the sort of the horrors of dealing with heroin withdrawal and heroin craving and addiction by just taking something else, taking an additional drug, which seems to be maybe the wrong path to go down, then that's going to be very attractive. And I think that the truth of the matter is that they've been searching for years and years for a good treatment for heroin addiction. Um, medical science currently has replacement therapy, which is fraught with its own political uh, landmines. But... Um, it's attractive to them, but I just don't see it working. I think in the end, just like diet and exercise, it comes down to sort of good detox and, you know, managing symptoms and supportive measures and and all of the hard things. Yeah. 
I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, the other the other thing to keep in mind when assessing literature of this sort is that Ibogaine, when it's given in a not by a squatter community <laughs> over several years in Amsterdam, but when it's given in a clinical environment, it's given in a private clinical environment with people who charge an arm and a leg for the detox treatment. And when you fork over a considerable amount of cash, the likelihood that you're going to interpret it as effective is greater than the likelihood that you will say it's ineffective. That's just human nature. Nobody wants to pay an awful lot of money for something that they subsequently feel was just an utter waste of time. But they were fleeced. They were fleeced. Absolutely. What I will say is that for the purposes of a Halloween podcast, one thing we got to talk about is Skittles. If you ever want to induce a zombie-like gait in a patient, you can go skittling. Now, you don't eat Skittles to turn into a zombie. What you do is you go skittling and you take dextromethorphan because triple C's, coracetin, cough, and cold. Oops, am I going to get in trouble because I mentioned a trade name of a product? Anyway, coracetin, cough, and cold. I'm glad you're shaking your head, Matt. Coracetin, cough, and cold looks almost exactly like Skittles. When you buy an entire box of dextromethorphan and you gobble down one of the blister packs, the likelihood that you're going to enter a dissociative anesthetic state and develop a zombie-like gait is a reasonable expectation. Remember, these compounds are NMDA antagonists. They, they allow you to sort of forget that your feet are down there, or at least you certainly can't feel them. And when you can't feel your feet, you wind up with either a wide base gait or a flat-footed gait, or you pick up your feet and kind of throw your, throw your foot forward so you don't trip on your, on your toes as you, as you advance your foot forward uh, before heel strike. So the people who use dextromethorphan are interesting in that if you get them up to walk them, they just can't walk properly. And it's referred to as a zombie-like gait. I love it when they walk. No, it's it's great. In addition to the zombie effect, I mean, whenever anyone is, I guess, a robo-tripping is the, is the vernacular very often used, even though it's not the not the robitussin, it's not the uh, glyphenosin that they want. That just kind of gives them a headache. It's the dextromethorphan. But uh, they also get, uh, similar to uh, PCP or ketamine, they can get kind of nystagmus and sort of glassy eye movements, which can be very disturbing for people for people to see. And so they get that zombie-like stare also yeah. if they take enough. And the cool thing about the NMDA antagonists, and that's uh, ketamine, dextromethorphan, and PCP, is that they, they produce specific neuropsychiatric effects. Patients will develop hallucinations, but they kind of break down a little bit according to the type of drug that somebody's ingested. People with PCP are impressed with their own strength. They're impressed with their physical physique. They have an almost unbearable sexuality, which they have to share with other folks, which is why a lot of the people who have abused PCP come in naked. People who use ketamine and dextromethorphan are a little bit different. They endure cosmic, near-death, or religious hallucinations. So you get to see the seething mass of Krishna blue consciousness at the center of the cosmos while millions of entities all surround you. That's with ketamine. Dextromethorphan is a little bit similar to it, but not quite as intense. But it's important to keep in mind, not only because it's a candy, but dextromethorphan is a kiddie drug. Dextromethorphan can be shoplifted from just about any place. 
it can be taken surreptitiously in lots of environments, and the, the age of initiation of dextromethorphan abuse is a little bit younger than what we might expect. If the data that's available to us can be believed, the people who present who are intoxicated from dextromethorphan overdose is about 14 years of age. That's pretty young. No, absolutely. And it's, um, oddly enough, it has a, a bimodal distribution throughout the year. They find that it peaks sort of in the fall and in the spring. I think it probably has to do with um, school sessions and academics. It's a drug of the young because it's easily accessible and it's perceived as safe. And I find that a positive predictor for dextromethorphan intoxication is angry mom. Whenever I see one of these patients, <laughs> there very often is an angry mother sitting outside the room because the patient is where they want to be very often. They have over, they have ingested enough dextromethorphan where they are tripping and and very often what I've had is the mom finds them doesn't think that Jimmy is right so brings Jimmy in and you see Jimmy sort of sitting there dancing eyes can't walk and Jimmy is exactly where he wants to be although he's enjoying the seething mass of Krishna blue consciousness at the center of the cosmos exactly and actually we've, we've talked about this website before on the show but Arrowhead has a really nice section on dextromethorphan going through the effects the dosage effects in terms of what volume of coracetin or other form of dextromethorphan you need to take to achieve different plateaus of either activation and high all the way up to sort of full body out of body dissociative experiences but it looks like uh, according to that data the vast majority of people who attempt to trip on dextromethorphan don't don't do it again only about 30 percent ever do it again because the high is not always very pleasant you can have sort of unpleasant religious cosmos yowling creature hallucinations which you don't want to which you don't want to repeat and the other interesting tidbit in terms of tox trivia for Stephanie and for others might be, do you know what abnormality you might find on just a chemistry on somebody who has ingested a large amount of dextromethorphan? Hmm. You know, I could guess something randomly, but no. That is fine. This is tox trivia. This is read my mind. I can't read his mind. Which is probably a good thing. But uh, essentially, uh, so dextromethorphan often has uh, bromine in it. It's a, it's a bromine salt. And bromine, when you do... Oh, so chloride then is going to be, right? So what, so what would you go with that? So, like I said, I was a chemist. So bromine and chlorine are um, together in the same group on the periodic table, group 7. And bromide is the, is the ion that the, that's the next one down, in the, in the next row down. So my guess is that when you try to measure a chloride, the bromide is going to be red as if it were chloride. Absolutely. And so what might that do to your anion gap? So you are, because you have chloride in there, so you're going to have more chloride than you really have because the bromide will be included in there. It'll make the chloride appear uh, artificially high, basically. And so your anion gap will be... So then it should actually decrease. Right. And so if you ever get a patient where you get a negative anion gap, which is physically impossible because we are electrically neutral, our bodies like us to be neutral, then think about bromine salts, which nowadays can be found in dextromethorphan. Very cool. You know, it's interesting. Now I understand this. So I've been fighting a cold for the last couple of weeks, and I went and bought some NyQuil, which also has dextromethorphan in it. And they carded me, which I thought, that's kind of strange. It's not like it's alcohol or anything. But... Uh, that I know of, but yeah, they actually did card me. Well, it's also because of the um, the, the uh, pseudoephedrine, which can be used to make uh, meth. I guess that's true too, but not in Nyquil, just in the Dayquil, right? Oh, you're right. That's very interesting. Yeah, I actually they carded me. They wouldn't let me. I tried to do the self checkout, mm -hmm. 
and um, it said I had to wait to be approved by a store employee. Maybe. It's because the uh, Food and Drug Administration changed some of the purchasing requirements uh, for dextromethorphan in exchange for not making it a prescription. I, I, I'm a little bit hazy on the details, but there was a push to make it a prescription drug because of abuse of the substance, and the drug was not made a prescription. Dextromethorphan was not made a prescription substance, uh, but it was. there were some restrictions that were placed on it. And the one thing I'll say as a, as a tox pearl sort of a bonus or a tox add-in here is if you see someone who is tripping on dextromethorphan, the important thing actually is, I mean, well, they can get serotonin syndrome because it has serotonergic effects, so you have to watch for that. But also it's very commonly mixed with other stuff that they didn't mean to take, but they did. So you have to check and see the medicine level. You have to think about anticholinergic toxicity if there was chlorpheniramine or an anticholinergic mixed in with it. Very often there can be some alcohol, so there can be some alcohol intoxication. So it's important to check those levels because um, even if they're not suicidal, we've had patients with toxic levels of Tylenol merely for, or acetaminophen merely from attempting to robo-trip. Yeah, you have to be careful, too, if you're mixing brands. The store brand, I was telling you before, the, the regular doses of the NyQuil only have 650 milligrams of acetaminophen, but the store brand uh, had a, a whole gram in it. So even uh, mixing different NyQuils is, is probably not the greatest idea. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think that was that was a really great discussion. I have to say my favorite Halloween candy, candy corn. It's pretty much just sugar. Oh, in... Those are nasty. Oh, it's sugar in, in corn format. It's like a sugar in a vegetable. What is it? It's great. Actually, it's probably high fructose corn syrup in a kernel. It's mm. corn food. You, know, you have cheese food. It's like corn food. <laughs> exactly. I would have to go with the Milky Way Darks. Um, and uh, and, and why, why do you like the Milky Way Darks? Because it has all of my favorite candy components. It has dark chocolate, and it has caramel, and it has nougat. And they taste great together. Fantastic. Spoken like a like a budding toxicologist, she breaks it down into constituent parts. She could probably tell you the effects on her on her taste centers. I'm a chemist. And Ed, you know, I I don't know that I have a a favorite candy because I'm kind of an indiscriminate candy grazer. Well, I want to thank you both for for being here, and I hope that you're having a great Halloween season. And next year, hopefully, we'll find a better way to incorporate vampires into our Halloween podcast. If anyone has any suggestions for vampires and toxicology, that's real. I don't want to hear true blood plot lines. But any any vampire toxicology, send it in. I like vampires. They're my favorite undead. You're kind of weird. <laughs> You're the one to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is toxicology after all. <laughs> and that's another segment of Tox Talk. Well, that was a great segment. Uh, hope that uh, you all enjoyed it. Uh, it's kind of fun in toxicology being able to approach things from from a different point of view and just kind of uh, let our tox brains wander. I, for one, am scared. Coming up next, we have a segment with myself, uh, Kavita Babu, and Scott Glazier talking about Pradaxa. Please uh, forgive us if you disagree with our pronunciation. Uh, it's a drug name that begs for mispronunciation, and uh, I'm curious to see what our patients will come up with when they try to pronounce it.
Hello, and welcome to another segment of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman. With me today is Scott Glazier and Kavita Babu. Hello, thanks for having me back. Scott is a second-year resident at UMass. And hi, I'm Kavita Babu. I'm a toxicologist at Brown University. From down south. 50 miles. Fifty. That's really far by Rhode Island standards. Do you have to show your passport before you cross the border? It's like a day trip. Bring water. And so we wanted to talk, I think Kavita had seen a case recently that she wanted to talk about. So, you're in the emergency department and an 80-year-old with a history of AFib presents with melanoma. Over the past two weeks, he's been transitioned from the warfarin that he typically takes to dabigatrin, a new drug. Patient knows little about it, but is glad that he doesn't have to have frequent INR checks. And now he's here with a hemoglobin of 7, a heart rate of 105, in AFib. And the question comes from the medicine team about what we're going to do to reverse his anticoagulation. Send him home. Uh-oh. This is the uh-oh scenario. This is why whenever you hear about a new drug, you always go, how could that go wrong? And I think whenever you have a blood thinner, melana is not a good thing. Well, traditionally, if the patient were on Coumadin, I would give vitamin K, and I would consider giving FFP, the fresh frozen plasma, to reverse the Coumadin. And I think that the primary discussion today is going to be about this new anticoagulant, the Bigotrin, a direct thrombin inhibitor, its uses, its pharmacology, and then what our options are when patients come in with bleeding. Is it dabigatrin or dabigatrin? One of those words I've only ever seen in print and not heard out loud, but based on argatraban and its pronunciation, by and large, the community out here has started saying dabigatrin. All right, maybe it'll become regionalized. I wonder what they call it in Georgia. Yes, and so the patient comes in on, uh, on a blood thinner, bleeding. And this is actually a common problem, but this is a novel problem because they're on a novel agent. And I am an emergency physician, and I don't know what to do. And, and why is this so... It's Dibigatrin, I haven't heard about this really up until recently. Why are we talking about this now? With me, the first time I heard about this drug was in June when I was at one of our other hospitals, and we had a head bleeder uh, who was on Dibigatrin, and... As you mentioned, FFP, vitamin K, which we use a lot. Many of our other bleeders, whether it's a head bleed or a GI bleed, it's our go-to. And with the Bigotran, it doesn't really work. And why doesn't it really work? Well, I think we should start maybe with a discussion of where the Bigotran came from and why you're starting to see it now. So when it comes to the management of conditions like atrial fibrillation or venous thromboembolism, warfarin has been our mainstay. Warfarin or Coumadin has really been the oral anticoagulant that's dominated the American market or the world market for the past 50 years. During this time, there's been a search for a replacement, and the reason that there's been this search is because Warfarin, even though it has significant therapeutic benefits, also has a risk of bleeding that can be affected by things like food-drug interactions, like drug-drug interactions, and even things as simple as diarrhea can really significantly elevate your INR. And amongst the population, even pharmacogenetic conditions can affect the response to warfarin. It's both a wonder drug and um, a, a very difficult drug. And it's, I mean, it's the number one reason for emergency department visits related to sort of a therapeutic agent is due to, due to uh, 
Warfarin. Uh, interesting trivia called Warfarin. Scott, do you know where the name Warfarin comes from? I believe it came from Wisconsin. Yes, the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, who originally helped develop and patent the medication. But And, and as an emergency physician, warfarin, whenever you're searching a med list and you see uh, warfarin or Coumadin, that's when your eyes start to roll because you know that there's a potential for badness. However, I think also that in medicine, whenever there is an agent that has this rate of side effect and this rate of adverse outcome that hangs around, it tells you that it must do something really important if it keeps getting prescribed and we haven't moved on from it. And it must be really hard to figure out a replacement for it. And so I think that that has been a search for a long time. And so I can see why some of our colleagues are excited about this, because there is such a huge amount of healthcare resources that goes into monitoring warfarin and, and treating the side effects from warfarin. And not just the colleagues, but also the patients with the fact that they have to get their blood checked very frequently when they're on warfarin. And it hurts. Yeah, it does. It seems like the search for a direct thromin inhibitor has been ongoing. And, and one of the issues really has been an issue of duration of effect. So there are other direct, direct thromin inhibitors available on the market, but they tend to be in continuous infusion dosing only because they're so short-acting. What dibigotrin represents as sort of a sea change in the world of direct thrombin inhibitors is an oral agent. And that's why there's so much hype about this new medication is because it's the first real alternative to Coumadin other than BID and oxaparin in decades. Yeah, and I think, I think that's really important. And uh, an oxaparin being the low molecular weight uh, heparin. That's that you really you have to inject twice a day and and although although nice thing about anoxaparin you don't have to check levels although in, in children I know that they often do check levels but not in adults so this is the alternative this is the new wonder drug from from American Pharma and I think that uh, clinicians have been seeing sort of people trickle in on this medication and seeing more and more and seeing commercials and I've even had patients who aren't on it say, you know, I heard about this medication that I don't have to get my Coumadin level checked. And I really want to be on that medication. And I am a bit of a, a paranoid guy. And so my the thing that I tell my family members and loved ones is never be the first one to take a, a new medication. The cardiology trial is called RELY. And RELY looked at the utility of dibigotrin compared to warfarin in the setting of non-valvular atrial fibrillation. So this had to be AFib that came from a source other than a valvulopathy. What they did was they looked at 18,000 patients in order to determine non-inferiority. Non-inferiority is a pretty common type of trial that you see when a new drug is being compared to an old standard. So this trial certainly doesn't prove that dibigotrin is better than warfarin, it just shows that it's not any worse. So essentially a non-inferiority study is, is, is kind of like when you're dating. The, the, if you have a couple of options, or if you are amongst a couple of options, Scott, if there's a number of guys, you know, and, and you're all vying for the same girl, you don't have to be better than the other guys, you just have to be as good as them. Less worse. Less worse than the other guys. That's pretty much how I operate daily. Yeah, exactly. Or it's, you know what it's like, um, actually, it's, uh, there's an old joke about, uh, two men who are hiking in, in sort of the Arctic and they come across a polar bear. 
and the one man leans down and starts tightening his shoelaces, and the, uh, the his friend looks at him and goes, you really think you're going to outrun that polar bear? And he says, I don't have to outrun the polar bear, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> that would thus be a, non, a non-inferiority study in a way. That's right. And that's the whole point of this podcast, is that message for today. Yes. <laughs> you don't have to outrun the polar bear, you just have to outrun the other meal. We're not worse than the other guys. Exactly. In fact, I think that's that's a big advertisement for most emergency departments. <laughs> Come to us. <laughs> We're not worse than the other guys. And Rely looked at 18,000 patients with a history of atrial fibrillation to determine whether or not dabigatrin was as good as warfarin in the prevention of stroke. The other thing that they examined was the risk of bleeding complications. The interesting thing about dabigatrin and part of what's advertised to physicians is that a single dose is used across patient populations. So you can use 110 milligrams or 150 milligrams twice daily. Those are really the recommended dosing stratifications for dabigatrin. It's not 2.5 and then 5 and then you take 7 one day. It's not as complicated for patients or physicians to manage. That being said, when they looked at these two doses, with 110 milligrams of dabigatrin compared to warfarin, the rates of stroke and systemic emboli were similar to the warfarin group, but there was a lower rate of major hemorrhage. On the other hand, when they used the 150 milligram dose, there was a lower rate of stroke and systemic emboli, but the rate of hemorrhage was higher when compared with warfarin. So frequently what you'll find now is that clinicians are using the 110 milligram BID dose. The other trial is called RECOVER. In the RECOVER trial, also published in the New England Journal of Medicine, they compared dabigatrin and warfarin for the prevention of recurrent venous thromboembolism. And in that trial, they found no difference statistically between the efficacy in preventing recurrent thromboembolism of dabigatrin and warfarin. They also found no difference in um, bleeding complications between the two agents. That being said, there is no FDA-approved indication for dabigatrin in the use of venous thromboembolism as of now. The only indicated use is the prevention or stroke prophylaxis in the setting of non-valvular atrial fibrillation. I mean, we were joking before about inferiority, but in reality, from what I've read, this is exactly what a lot of clinicians have been trying to find, is to find a drug that isn't inferior to warfarin. And, and that can be helpful, and I think that some of the motivations are, are very, are very uh, noble in a way, because they've done studies on emergency department patients, and if you take an uh, emergency department population and test everyone on warfarin, test everyone's INR, the percentage of patients that will be within the goal range of usually 2 to 3 is less than 50%. They'll either be too high or too low. Too low, and they stroke out too high and they get bleeds. And so when you're dealing with a medication with that many problems, I think it makes sense to come up with an alternative. And there's there's a motivation for that. If you can come up with a better mousetrap, you can sell a lot of mousetraps. The market is going to be huge. The anticoagulation market is going to be over $9 billion in 2014. We should say that neither of us own stock. We, we have no conflicts. But we may start. 
We may start. <laughs> Buy my mousetrap. <laughs> I'll sell my vitamin K and FFP stock. <laughs> but okay, so this is this is the these are these new trials that are out that sort of support the use of this and has pushed forward FDA approval of this agent and from from bench to bedside we're starting to see it in patients. And essentially, what is a, a direct thrombin inhibitor? How is that different than, than, say, warfarin? When you look at warfarin, classically what people describe is the inhibition of vitamin K-dependent clotting factors, so 2, 7, 9, and 10. And ultimately, what activated clotting factors do is that at a downstream level, they activate thrombin. Thrombin catalyzes the activation from fibrinogen to fibrin. And that really is kind of where the rubber hits the road in terms of the clotting cascade. So direct thrombin inhibitors, by acting at sort of one of the most downstream steps, bypass a lot of the variability that you can get with coagulation factors, particularly because coagulation factors can be affected by things like diet, by things like other drugs by things like diarrhea, where vitamin K is affected by gut transit, really by kind of picking the end stage of the coagulation cascade, they've created something that may be cleaner, but also is not readily amenable to reversal. And I think that's good. And for those of you that can't see it at, at, at home, Dr. Babu has just drawn out the most intricate coagulation cascade pathway I have ever seen. It, it must have taken, well, just incredibly long time to, to memorize, and I have to say I'm impressed. I, I certainly couldn't do that. It's too bad you can't see it, but it's, it's, it's beautiful. Thank you. So, so it's great because it acts where it needs to. It skips all the other messy steps, and essentially, in a way, it's almost like prednisone versus immune modulators. Right now, we have something that affects 20 different proteins and is affected by everything else. But if we can just skip that messy system and get right to the heart of it, get right to really what we're trying to affect, we're not trying to affect all these other factors. We're really trying to thin people's blood. Uh, it would be better. However, all of those fun tools I have, like FFP and cryoprecipitate and, and vitamin K, act on the upstream proteins and messengers. And so if we're skipping all of those, I'm kind of worried that as an emergency physician, my hands are going to be tied when I see someone who does have bleeding, or bleeding not from, but bleeding on to bigotron. And it, I think that the first place you need to start is, actually, before we start with that, I think we need to talk about a couple of things related to the pharmacology of dibigotrin. There are a few things that you want to know about this. One is that it's renally cleared. And so patients who have renal dysfunction for a variety of reasons may not be candidates for starting dibigotrin, or should they develop renal dysfunction while they're on it, they're going to have a greater anticoagulant effect. There are actually dose adjustments recommended for people with different, differing degrees of uh, renal impairment. But just keep that in mind, because should you see this GI bleeder come in not just with melanin, but with some acute renal insufficiency related to blood loss, suddenly you know that they're going to be further anticoagulated by what they have on board. 
And that's concerning, too, because really we're not talking about a laboratory. We're talking about a person who generally is on multiple medications. And the commonality between... We often see patients who have CHF and AFib. They're very often on furosemide. They're very often on diuretics. And so their propensity for renal failure or acute renal failure is huge. And so you take a population that is at high risk for renal insufficiency, and then you give a medication that's renally cleared, and, and I, it's concerning. So typically we talk about the bigotrin being given in BID dosing. There's an elimination of half-life of 12 to 17 hours when you have normal renal function, but that can be essentially doubled up to 34 hours if you have evidence of renal impairment. So we know that this stuff hangs around. And one of the things that we've seen with medications like anoxaparin is when you don't have ready reversal, can you temporize these patients? Can you resuscitate them with blood? Can you wait long enough for the anticoagulant activity to go away? We're talking about a long wait in these cases, like I said, up to 34 hours in the patients with renal disease. One of the big decision points for us is going to be whether or not the bleeding is in a closed space. So by a closed space, what we typically refer to is intracranial bleeding, spinal epidural hematomas, pericardial bleeding, but bleeding in which the time to reversal is critical, as opposed to something like a GI bleed where you may be able to, again, temporize these patients with transfusion of packed red cells. So if we were going to approach the patient who's bleeding on the bigotrin, Again, it depends on the location. Location, location, location. The first thing is that obviously, if it's something simple, the patient has a laceration and they're on dibigotrin, well, then we're going to start with the application of pressure. The second is that we can consider specific antidotes or reversal agents if the patient has something that we would consider life-threatening. Because every one of the agents that we're going to talk about has potential complications with administration. And so if it is something benign in terms of the bleeding, we don't want to take the risk of reversal. Unfortunately, the experience with reversal agents, specifically here, we're talking about FF. I would say the other, the other option with any kind of toxic effect from a medication is also direct removal of the medication. And so whether or not hemodialysis would be indicated would also be another possible pathway that's being thrown out there. Because at this point in time, a lot of this is theoretical, and we're learning sort of on the ground. And maybe we'll talk about this later, but from my knowledge, that's all I know is a way to treat someone on dibigotran is hemodialysis. I think we'll get to that later. And I think it's, it's important, and it's part of sort of the black box that remains, because right now, nobody has great experience with this. But what we're really talking about is the theory behind our different options. So going back to the classic reversal agents that we would consider for warfarin, starting with things like FFP and vitamin K, one of the, the sort of interesting things about dabigatrin is that just from being on it, your INR is going to be elevated. You'll typically see these patients come in with an INR between 1.5 and 2 if they're taking their dabigatrin. So if somebody comes in who's on dabigatrin and their INR is 1, my concerns that they're anticoagulated are much, much lower. Unfortunately, unlike warfarin, there is not a dose response. So we can't predict your degree of anticoagulation just because you have an INR of 2. There are better tests out there, thrombin time and a carin clotting time, but unfortunately those aren't clinically available to most physicians. 
Is there a role for FFP? It's, it's unclear. And the reason is that, again, we're talking about a process that's downstream of the clotting factors that are typically replaced with FFP. Is there a role for vitamin K? I would argue not, because there really isn't a mechanism for vitamin K antagonism. Does cryoprecipitate get us anything more than FFP? There's no evidence to suggest that that's the case. And then does Novo 7 or recombinant factor 7 have any role here? There may be some minor prothrombin effect associated with recombinant factor 7, but there's also an adverse event profile. And if we're not convinced that there's a role for FFP, I suspect there's even a lesser role for recombinant factor 7. We consider the prothrombin complex concentrates because those are prothrombotic. So in a recent trial in circulation, they compared the role of prothrombin complex concentrates in reversing anticoagulation from rivaroxaban, a factor 10A inhibitor, and then dibigatrin. And while they found complete and rapid reversal of rivaroxaban with PCCs, they didn't see any effect with dibigatrin. Given the risk profile of prothrombin complex concentrate, which can cause spontaneous thrombotic events, I would not advocate for the use of prothrombin complex concentrate. The last thing that we need to talk about is the role of hemodialysis, because we know that this is a drug that's renally cleared and can be recovered with hemodialysis. We just don't know whether that affects outcomes or not. And so hemodialysis against a non-heparinized circuit is a very reasonable course of action in the patient with closed space bleeding. Now, why a non-heparinized circuit, Dr. Babu? Just because you prefer not to heparinize the patient who's already got closed space bleeding ductures. Thank you for clarifying that. I'm glad you did. I was going to ask that question. Dialysis against a non-heparinized circuit is a reasonable course of action, but right now it's going to be hard to convince one of your renal consultants to come in in the middle of the night to dialyze somebody for a questionable indication when in many cases they're already critically ill. What I would encourage individual physicians to do at their institution is really, if you haven't done it already, come up with a protocol for how you're going to address the bigotrin-induced or associated bleeding so that when it happens, you're not determining the ideal treatment by yourself in the middle of the night. I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. This is this is a an area for proactive uh, action and not reactive. And very often, sadly, we are more reactive than proactive. And it's the middle of the night. And we're trying to determine what to do for a patient. We're looking stuff up at the, for the first time, and we're calling consultants. And those consultants might not be speedy to act. Additionally, I think one of the things that will complicate the discussion of this medication is unlike warfarin. The half-life, or I shouldn't say half-life because toxicologists don't talk, don't talk half-life, but the duration of effect for this medication is much shorter. It's a BID medication. The duration of effect is about 12 hours, correct? Maybe. The, that being said, the recommendation for how long between cessation of dibigatrin and elective surgery is on the order of two to three days. So even though we talk about BID dosing, it may not be that 12 hours after your last dose, your coagulation cascade is returned to normal. And I think, I think one of the reasons why we are here having this conversation is emergency providers tend to be the naysayers of 
not the naysayers, but we tend to be the nervous Nellies of the medical community because we see the middle of the night complications from these medications. And so whenever one of our wonderful colleagues comes up with a new medication to treat cancer or heart disease or atrial fibrillation and focuses on the wonderful endpoints because they're very used to focusing on one organ system, we say, but what happens when they accidentally take twice as much? Somebody else takes this. They end up with a bleeding complication. They need emergent surgery. And very often those questions don't get asked. And so I think it's important for us to ask them. One of my colleagues reported a case in which he said to the cardiologist, well, what are we planning to do for the bleeding complications of dabigatrin? And the cardiologist said, I won't be managing those. I, I agree with Dr. Zuckerman. I, I, I think the thing is that we have to be involved with the approval of a lot of these medications as they come onto hospital formularies. And, and part of the reason is because then we can put the ball in motion even before the drug becomes commonly used at our institution. A lot of emergency physicians don't volunteer their time for pharmacy and therapeutics committees, but I would certainly advise that as a course of action if you really want to be out on the front end of this. Just to pose one question to you two, if you had a family member who had AFib, would you recommend the Bigotrin? Because to be honest with you, I wouldn't, I don't want any of my family members on it. Just because of what we see, the complications would just, I wouldn't know how to treat it. There are a lot of emergency physicians who distrust uh, warfarin, who who say, you know, if you're if you're, we've all seen the 98 year old who's fallen three times who comes in and they're on warfarin, and you go, oh my gosh, why are they on warfarin? And so I think that just like any anticoagulation discussion, it has to be a personal case by case basis. If I had a family member who was getting checked and was not having wild fluctuations, and these people do exist, we just don't see them in the emergency department. But there are people who have been on the same dose of Coumadin for, or the same dose of warfarin for years and have not had issues. Switching those people to a more expensive, harder to reverse agent is not really indicated. And I think that's the concerning thing too, is there tends to be a big push that newer is better. And I think I, I don't mind the hard to control person, the person who I normally see whose INR is eight every week being started on this medication, because some of the studies seem to indicate that with less, less variability, hopefully there will be less side effects. I do mind the person who has been on warfarin for years, who has had a steady INR, who just says, I don't want to get my blood checked being put onto this medication. Aside from the uh, concern over treating adverse events is the cost. I think it's a hard question to answer, and it, it just depends on sort of the individual needs. Like like Matt said, I think that people who are stable on, on people who have been stable long-term on warfarin should remain on warfarin. The population that I think could benefit from this the most is that patient population who has had wide dose variation, but also the shut-ins, the folks who have a really hard time either checking their own INRs or getting them checked. And for those people, this is really going to represent a lifestyle modification that may be of benefit to them. The middle ground is largely going to depend on your cardiologist and their level of comfort and their choices regarding this. The other thing, though, is that there is a lot of direct-to-patient advertising going on with this, so just don't be surprised when right. people are requesting it. I think that's, I think that's uh, very, very true. And hopefully, 10 years from now, once this medication has sort of reached its saturation point in the market and we've seen some of the consequences, everything went well. And 
and, and we've got a better protocol. And then it'll be fine, you'll say, I've got a head bleed that onto bigotrin, and you'll have a protocol to follow that. But I think right now, any sort of change in medicine, uh, I think over the, the next big steps are to have R2, first of all, be aware that it's out there, be aware that you're going to see more patients on it. Um, also, be aware as to how to monitor it. Be aware that it does affect the INR, but it's not a dose-dependent relationship, so you're not going to be able to follow the INR. And whether or not that means hospital labs start instituting some of these now possibly now these experimental monitoring, I think is a good question. And I think that's a conversation you have to have with your lab department. And then um, talking to the neurosurgeons, the cardiologists, uh, the gastroenterologists, the hematologists at your hospital and coming up, the trauma surgeons, the, the, uh, the nephrologists, and coming up with a protocol uh, and into how to interact. Because this is not because of the time-sensitive nature of many of these complications, this is not a time to sort of develop things on the ground, develop things while you're doing it to learn while doing. But I, my, what I fear is that's probably going to happen in most places. The other thing that I would encourage people to do is to report their experiences with dabigatrin to MedWatch. Because when you see these patients, the individual with the GI bleed, the individual with the intracerebral hemorrhage, I think that the thing that's really critical is the element of post-market surveillance. And so now that this is out and we're trying to figure out where it fits into the rubric of medicine, we need to know what the experience is in the general population, not the study population. So please take the time Go to the MedWatch website, familiarize yourself with it, and when you see these dabigatrin cases, go ahead and make sure you input their information. And that's both. That's not just, I saw someone with a head bleed or a GI bleed on dabigatrin. That's also, I saw someone with a CVA or with recurrent thromboembolic disease on dabigatrin. And that's just the nature of science and research. Nobody's a bad guy, but when you increase the N of a study, and essentially post-market surveillance is dramatically increasing the number of subjects, you're going to see effects that you just didn't see before. And maybe we'll find subpopulations that this works or does not work for. Um, but I think reporting things to MedWatch is extremely important. And that's just, that's www.fta.gov slash safety slash MedWatch. Or toxtalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. It's just as easy as remembering the clotting cascade. It's almost the same thing. I can draw you a picture. You already did. <laughs> I have to say, beautiful, beautiful picture. The, the charcoal shadow, I thought, really was uncalled for, but really adds depth to the whole thing. And Steve Jobs. <laughs> I, think, I think Dr. Rabu has a shout-out to somebody. <laughs> I miss Steve Jobs. Those of you who are listening to this podcast on your iPod know that it is that much sadder for the passing of Steve Jobs. This podcast was recorded on a PC. <laughs> and uh, Scott, do you have any anything else that you? No, want? thank you for inviting me back to talk. And I think this is a very interesting conversation. It'll be more relevant to emergency medicine as time goes on. For more information, there's a nice review of the pharmacology and management of complications from dabigatrin in the September uh, Journal of Medical Toxicology, and we'll put a link to that on our site. So your patient with the melana who's on dabigatrin ends up being transfused two units of blood and going to the ICU. Within 24 hours of their hospitalization, they've had an EGD that demonstrates a bleeding ulcer, which is successfully cauterized. Conversations are ongoing with cardiology at this time about whether or not it's safe to restart anticoagulation. Thank you very much for giving us the conclusion to that case.
You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Thank you both for coming. And that's another segment of Talks Talk. Well, that was a great show. Thanks for joining me on Talks Talk. Talks Talk is a production of the UMass Division of Toxicology at the University of Massachusetts Department of Emergency Medicine. You can reach us on the web at toxtalk.org, as well as find us in the iTunes store. Join us next time on Talks Talk, and have a happy holiday season. This is Matt Zuckerman. Mm-hmm.